Stevie Wonder was born. He was actually born with sight, but because he was a premature baby, he was placed in an incubator. And in the incubator, he got too high a level of oxygen, which compromised his sight and left him blind. So he was not blind from birth, but he was certainly blind shortly after birth. He would later say, just because a man lacks the use of his eyes doesn't mean that he lacks vision. At a young age, he would distinguish himself by singing in a church. And by age 11, he was signed to a record deal. Born Steveland Hardaway Judkins. His name would be changed to Little Stevie Wonder. And there, self-taught in terms of piano and harmonica and percussion, he was a child prodigy and had a number one song, Fingertips Part 2, on both the pop and R&B charts at age 12. He edited his name to Stevie Wonder and embarked on studying classical piano just so that he could improve his singing, songwriting, musicianship. And by the age of 20, he would record additional and would go on to fame and fortune. An individual who, well, would produce a litany of songs in which there exists just a high degree of talent and craft with an elegant simplicity. To quote the great music historian, Derek Bruns, can I get an amen? He is one of the greatest musicians of all time. We'll get back to Stevie Wonder in just a little bit. Page 1031, chapter, verse 1, chapter 6 of Revelation. Okay, now just... The last couple weeks have been really, really cool, okay, because we've been in this vision of God and the throne room and the Lamb, and it's all this. This kind of is a little bit darker, okay? There, there's, this is the end of the world, okay? And, and you can argue that there is a certainty to these words. You might say that they are signed, sealed, and delivered. So listen. Now I watched, verse 1, chapter 6, 1031. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come, and I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I look, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Both Beale, N.T. Wright, and Peterson all agree that the seven seals, which we talk about today, the seven trumpets and the seven bowls are describing the same event from three different angles and also with emphasis. Now, this seems a little bit weird to us, but remember, the nature of apocalyptic literature is to do just that. A number of three adds emphasis to a concept that the writer is attempting to get across. The nature of apocalyptic literature is that it offers viewpoints from different angles about events that are happening, that will happen, and that are yet to come. We find ourselves right here, the first of three descriptions about the end of the world. Three ways of looking at the same event. 
Again, this repetition, somewhat unfamiliar to us, is very familiar to the writers of the Bible, very familiar to the readers of apocalyptic literature. A unique emphasis helping us understand how things are going down. Again, this is another one of those chapters in Revelation where we see things that have happened, are happening, and will happen. And an interesting question to noodle on, if you're into noodling, are the first four seals descriptive or proscriptive? At any rate, the first four seals, as we have them, borrow heavily from the language of the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapter 14, Zechariah chapter 6, you will see similar concepts repeated. And then Jesus' own words in Matthew chapter 24. These things don't happen sequentially. That is to say, the white horse comes out, then leaves, the red horse comes out, and then leaves, the black horse comes out, and then leaves, and then the pale horse comes out and leaves, but rather that they can happen concurrently or in a unique order. Keep in mind, the first century church reading this for the first time, they would have said, yeah, we can identify with the realities that are being discussed here. So let's get into it. The White Horse. This is not a Taylor Swift song, although there is a lot of conquest in her life. Now, at times, theologians have thought that the rider of the white horse is Jesus, right? Because in Revelation chapter 19, we have a white horse with Jesus on it. But there's some differences. First off, this is the first of four horses who clearly are doing some pretty evil stuff. And secondly, the rider of the white horse, Jesus, in Revelation chapter 19, is called Faithful and True. And he has this big honking tat on his right thigh that describes what he is about. Those things are not in play in this description. This rider is an imposter. This rider is someone who represents all the rulers who have conquered and promised or who have promised and attempted to conquer. And there almost seems to be an implication that we, as followers of Jesus Christ, should be aware of imposters on white horses. That historically there have been a lot of them and that they will continue to pop up. The first four seals are, in essence, reflective of history as we understand it and history going forward. But as we think about this imposture, we think about the reality of an individual who has given the authority to conquer or who appears to conquer. I wonder, how often do we let that happen in our lives? How often do we let an imposter on a white horse conquer us? take our hearts away from something that God would have us embrace. The second horse is a red horse. Working in conjunction, perhaps, with the white horse, this rider brings a lack of peace. This rider brings strife. This rider brings people in conflict with one another. Related to the first? Yeah, without question. Antithetical to the work of Jesus Christ? Yes. Can we embrace peace as individuals? Well, I think we're commanded by God to do just that. But also know deep, 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 there is a war against peace, a battle that is deeply ingrained in the history of the world and the current and future experiences of the same. Again, should we pray for peace? Without question. 
Should we work for peace in our sphere of influence? Should we attempt to influence for the cause of Christ and for the good of Christ? Yes, yes, and more yes. Should we attempt to be active where God has placed us? Yes, please do. But also understand, the peace that we so desperately seek for the world around us, it won't be achieved until the end. And this can be a sobering, dark message, right? Because why would we want to continue to live in a place like this? It's a challenge that the text brings up and an additional challenge that happens when we open the fifth seal. But I ask you this question, and I ask it of my own heart. Can I live with this sense? Not in defeat, but reminding me of how much I need God. Can I live with the sense that there will not be complete peace in the world as I know it? And can I allow that not to defeat me, but to encourage me to realize how desperately we need a Savior, how critically important it is to be connected to Jesus Christ? Third horse, Third seal, black horse, holding scales. Now, the image as we understand it typically under, um, invites an image of famine where you would weigh out food against um, some monetary measure and they would be balanced on the scales. Now, the intriguing thing, which we lose just a little bit here in the text because we speak in dollars, not in denarius, okay, is that the price of staples in the verse has, uh, has an inflated value. Okay, so the staples that the poorest of the poor need to live has an inflated value. It is much more expensive to buy the basic necessities when their black horse comes out than it ever has been. That there is a famine and the poor aren't doing very well. But in the midst of the famine, and here, just listen to the verse because it's so intriguing. It should cause us to reflect. A quote of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Okay, inflated prices. But what happens next? But do not harm the oil and the wine. Don't mess with the luxury goods, okay? The fresh-pressed olive oil that we like on our bread, or at least I do, you know? That nice glass of Chardonnay or a nice Cab Franc. Yeah, yeah, don't, don't touch that. Don't mess with that. It's a dichotomy that might want to make us pause, that in the midst of famine, the wealthy are still drinking their grape juice and enjoying their freshly pressed olive oil on their daily bread. The pale horse is death, and Hades follows. First movie I ever went to in my life was The Pale Rider. Because see, when I was growing up, you couldn't go to movies. Okay, that was illegal. Not as a general statement for the whole world, but just for my family. We couldn't go to movies. That was illegal, verboten, do not go to movies. There were some other things that you couldn't do. You couldn't play cards, and you couldn't date girls that chose Copenhagen. But I'm <laughs> not quite sure. Not that if you're a girl who chose Copenhagen, there's any judgment in that. Okay, no judgment in that, but just... I. Although I did have an experience once with Copenhagen when I was also in 10th grade when I saw The Pale Rider for the first time in which I vomited on the opening night of a show in which I had a minor part in. But that's, that's, that was the start of the stupid years. And, and we'll, At any rate, The Pale Horse, okay? The Pale Horse, The Pale Rider is, is death. And death and Hades have control 
over a quarter of the world. And whether it be through war or pestilence or disease, death is brought about by the pale rider's hand. In each year since Christ has left his church, the words we read can be understood to apply to the times. A gentleman by the name of Chris Hedges wrote a book in 2003 entitled, What Every Person Should Know About War. First off, he defines war as an active conflict that has claimed more than a thousand lives. Now, if you want to disagree with Chris about his definition of war, that's fine, but let's just, for argument's sake, use that definition this morning. The next question related to our text here, has the world ever been at peace? Okay, so that means to say, has the world ever been at a place where there has not been an active conflict that has claimed more than a thousand lives? Chris says, yes. Of the 30, past 3,400 years, humans have been entirely at peace for 268 of them. 8%. 8% of recorded human history. That's all we can do. No peace exists for the world as we know it. We see the reality of that statistic bore out in these verses. Please understand that the basis for our perspective of the book of Revelation is one in which the world we live in has been in conflict and will continue to be in conflict because there are sources of evil, Satan battling God. This has been and this will continue to be until the day when he, the Lamb of God, returns. The first four seals are reflected throughout the church's history, and at times, sadly, the church has been in the midst of them. The next few verses, 9 through 11. It's another song, really. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. the number of their brothers who should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now, you can either look at this as the good news keeps on getting better, or you can look at this as the good news keeps on getting worse. I mean, we're inclined to look at it as a bad news situation, right? Because typically we've been conditioned to believe that death means the end of something. We've been conditioned to believe that if someone dies, it means someone else has been victorious. So in an armed conflict, in a war, you want to kill your enemies because once you've killed your enemies, you have defeated them. And so in one respect, we look at a text like this and we're like, wow, this is really a bummer. But in another way, it's a unique opportunity. Because for the follower of Jesus Christ, death is not final. In fact, for the follower of Jesus Christ, death at the hands of evil is actually victory. The fifth seal is this song of how long, O Lord, will this continue? 
Now, there's a couple other things that are going on, not the least of which is it's the only place in the Bible, N.T. Wright argues, where we find the physical location of people who have died in Christ before the end of the world. And literally, they are under the altar. They are under the altar, and they are crying out to God, asking, how long? How long? How long? The second intriguing thing is that they are under the altar. Now, for those of you who are Old Testament historians, you know the altar is the point at which a holy God meets his people who have been purified because of blood. And in this specific case, been purified because of the blood of Jesus Christ, the blood of the Lamb. Another intriguing thing is that the answer to the question of how long, which anyone who has ever suffered understands that very well. I have friends here today who have bodies that don't work like they should, who mind, whose minds don't always function like they would want them to, who entertain thoughts, notions, urges that they hate about themselves. And they have asked, how long? How long does this have to last? And the answer, wait. Wait. Waiting is one of the hardest things. And and in some ways, a completely unsatisfactory answer to the question, how long, O Lord? Perhaps it is one of those questions that will not be answered in our experience. But at a personal level for me, I'm glad God has waited. I'm glad God waited until I was born. I'm glad God waited until you were born. I'm glad God waited long enough when I was in the stupid years because if God had come in the middle of me being in the stupid years, I wasn't following Jesus Christ. And whatever theological claims we want to make about a decision that I made when I was a sixth grader, in the stupid years, I was having no time whatsoever for Jesus Christ. I was not following him in any way, shape, or form. I was doing my own thing. I am glad God waited long enough for me to come to my senses. And so I understand how unsatisfying the answer wait is when people are in the midst of suffering. But for me personally, I'm so glad God waited. And I'm so glad God is waiting for me and for you to more completely follow him. The final thing in these three verses is this notion, uncomfortable though it may be, that to be a follower of Jesus Christ is to suffer and to patiently wait. Again, verses 9, 10, and 11 are verses that have happened in the past, that are happening today, and will continue to happen in the future. Contrast that to what happens in verse 12, which I don't think has happened yet. Verse 12 is the end of the world. Think R.E.M. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, the moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. 
The sky vanished like a scroll that has been rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the rocks in the mountains, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath, the Lamb and the Father, has come, and who can stand against it? Again, I don't think these verses have happened yet. This is the end of the world. This is the cataclysmic wrath of the Lamb. And it's written from the perspective of those who are on the outside, who do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God, the Lamb who loves, is now in a position where he says, if you don't want my offer of love, we're done. The waiting is over. The time is complete. This happens after the suffering of the church is over. A hint, with, with everything that I can say inside of me, with, with all of the grace, but with all the urgency, you want to be on the right side of verses 12 through 17. You don't want to be found outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ when verses 12 through 17 happen. You want to be discovered in Christ in a vibrant, life-giving, intentional relationship with him before 12 through 17 happens. Because if you're in the midst of 12 through 17 and we don't know Jesus Christ, it is an ugly, ugly place in which to find oneself. Now, the imagery is amazing. And again, it borrows heavily from the Old Testament. But suffice it to say, everything that people throughout the ages have worshipped is gone. The political leaders that you want, they're gone. The kings, they're gone. The land is gone. The gold, everything's gone. Everything throughout the ages that we have worshipped no longer exists. And the only thing that's left is the lamb. And if we don't have a worship relationship with the lamb, it's a pretty ugly day. So what do we do with all this? I mean, it would be very easy to be incredibly pessimistic, wouldn't it? Very easy to have this be the worst day of our lives. But for the follower of Jesus Christ, that doesn't need to be so. That even though these words are signed, sealed, and delivered, for the follower of Jesus Christ, there is no fear in that day. In June 1970, Stevie Wonder released Signed, Sealed, and Delivered. On the B side of the 45 is the tune, I'm More Than Happy, I'm Satisfied, which I think is just one of the most wonderful names for a song. Now I'm going to go out on a limb here, and I'm going to say that, that probably Signed, Sealed, and Delivered wasn't intended to be used in a church. It's just my guess. But imagine the words, not as a love song to a boy or a girl, but as a love song to the Creator. Like a fool, I went and stayed too long. Now I'm wondering if your love's still strong. Oh, baby, here I am, signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. Then that time I went and said goodbye. Now I'm back and not ashamed to cry. Oh, baby, here I am, signed, sealed, delivered, I'm yours. Here I am, baby. Oh, you've got the future in your hand. Signed, sealed, delivered. I'm yours. More than a love song to the Creator, 
What if it was a prayer that we used to end our time together today? Wow.